Well, today is Valentine's Day. For some of you, you love this day. You love the romance, the chocolates, the cards. For others of you, um, like a friend of mine, you think this is the stupidest holiday ever. Because you just think it's just another excuse for me to spend money. But regardless of whether you think this is a stupid holiday or a great holiday, this holiday gives us an opportunity to ask ourselves an important question. How are Christian marriages doing? How are Christian marriages doing? This is an important question. And this is a question that I have been thinking about quite a bit over the last two years. Because the last two years I've had people who've been a part of my life, who've been Christians, who've gone through some really difficult marriages. I had one friend who I've been a lifelong friend with, um, was in his wedding, and a couple months ago found out after over a decade of marriage, their marriage ended, both Christians. Um, Other uh, couple I know of, both Christians, one of them was a mentor of mine many years ago, um, Christian leader whom I respect, that impacted my life. After over 20 years of marriage, their marriage ended. New friends Deb and I made, kind of an acquaintance uh, at this point, both Christians, their marriage just ended. Now, obviously, when marriages end like that, and when just Christian marriages are in a place of brokenness, obviously the people who are impacted most are the people who are in those marriages and the family. But there's another layer of impact that I want to talk about this morning. When Christian marriages end like that or are broken, it has another impact and it impacts the reputation of Christ and the reputation of the Christian faith. For example, the other day I was reading a a website called godisimaginary.com. You did not hear from me that you should go visit godisimaginary.com, by the way. But there's, in godimaginary.com, they have a lot of different, what they call proofs for why God isn't real. Proof number 38 is the high Christian divorce rate. And their argument is, look at these Christians. They say that, you know, Christ is in their life and it impacts their life, but they're like everybody else. Their marriage is just like everybody else's marriage. So God really isn't real. He's not making a difference. Now, there's been a lot uh, written recently, which is actually pretty good, debunking some of the myths around statistics, saying Christians get divorced as everybody else. Um, You could look it up on the web, some good stuff written. I think Ed Stetzer writes something on that. But it's kind of besides the point for this morning. What I want us to see is, When Christian marriages are suffering, people who are watching use it as a way of saying something not just about that couple, but about God. God's not real. God is weak. Therefore, in our marriages, we have an opportunity to either on the one hand glorify God, make him look good, or on the one hand hurt his reputation. This hasn't been a reality that is just new for us. This has always been a reality in the first century. Uh, In the early church, Peter, Apostle Peter, is writing to a group of Christians in modern-day Turkey. This is the letter of 1 Peter. And he's writing them, talking to them about the fact that he recognizes they're being critiqued by their culture quite a bit. And he says, hey, if they critique you for your beliefs, that's okay. Christians have always been critiqued for what they believe. Christ was critiqued for the things he taught. However, if they're critiquing you for how you live, for your inconsistency with the message, That is something I'm concerned about. And Peter says these words in chapter 2, verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. 
So Peter wants to say, I want you to glorify God in your lives. And he's going to go on in chapter 2 and chapter 3 to basically say, I want you to glorify God in a number of different areas. Glorify God in your politics, how you respond to the government. Glorify God in the workplace, how you respond to your employers. And he used the servant-master context there. And then finally, glorify God in your marriages. And it's this issue of what it looks like to glorify God in our marriages that I want to talk about this morning. So I would ask that you open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 1 through 7. Now, a couple caveats as we get into this. If you are here and you said, I'm not married, what a waste of a Sunday that I came here to hear about marriage. I want to challenge that for a couple different reasons. One, you might be married someday. And if you're going to be married someday, it's good to be thinking about what does it look like for me to glorify God in my marriage? Second, you probably know people who are married. And if you know people who are married, it's worth thinking, how can you be an encouragement to them? One of the most meaningful things in my wedding ceremony many years ago was that the people who were standing with us were invited by the person officiating the wedding to agree to help keep Debbie and I uh, supported and accountable in our marriage through the years. And I've seen some of those people ask me, hey, how are you guys doing? You know, and check in. So you can play a vital part in encouraging um, friends in their marriage. Another caveat I want to say is, as we walk through this passage, these seven verses don't say everything there is to say about how to glorify God in marriage. I'd encourage you to read elsewhere in Scripture, as well as some good books that are written out there. I've included one of them in the bottom of your bulletin, The Meaning of Marriage by Tim and Kathy Keller, that I think can unpack this even more than I'm going to be able to in this time that we're together. Now, as we look through these verses, chapter 3, 1 through 7, we're going to see that a God-glorifying marriage uh, has three sort of consists of three things. First, it's a marriage where wives honor their husbands. It's a marriage where husbands are considerate of their wives. And it's a marriage where both partners focus on Christ. That's what we're going to look at. First, we're going to look at it's a marriage where wives honor their husbands. Let's look in verses 1 and 2. I'm in the uh, new, new International Version. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. So that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. What does this mean that wives are to submit to their husbands? The New uh, Living Translation says it this way. Accept the authority of your husbands. If you're like my wife, I was talking to her about this passage this week. She said those words, the first thing she thinks is, my skin is crawling, is what she said when she hears these Verses. The idea of accepting authority from my husband. What is that about? This is the Bible? What does that mean? Um, Well, notice that in verse 1, Peter says, in the same way. In the same way, wives, submit to your husbands. What he's doing is he's referring back to chapter 2. And he's showing that this idea of submitting to something, accepting the authority of another, isn't just something that wives are being asked to do. It's something that we are all asked to do in different phases of life. For example, he talks about government. We are all called to accept the authority of government, not because government is smarter than us or more important than us or valuable, but it's how God designed society to work. Employers are so, are so employees are to accept the authority of employers. And I have my boss is a female, my boss's boss is a female. I'm to accept their authority in the workplace as my employers. And then when we get to marriage, it says that wives are to accept the authority of their husbands, or to submit 
to their husbands. So I recognize, as Debbie said, it can make our skin crawl a little bit at first glance. But I think if we recognize that even Jesus submitted himself to his father in order to take part in the plan he had for him, to take part in doing what God had called him to do, it shows us that this is just part of God's design for all of us. Now, what does it mean in marriage in particular? What does it mean for a wife to honor her husband or to uh, submit to her husband? It means this. Basically, when you look at the full biblical teaching, God has given the responsibility of being a servant leader to husbands for the benefit of their wives and their marriage. Let me say that again. God has given the responsibility of being a servant leader to husbands for the benefit of their wives and their marriage. And in response, wives are asked to honor their husbands. Now, why in this particular passage there are wives asked to honor their husbands? Why is this important? Well, to know that, it's important to understand the context of what Peter is writing to. Peter is writing to a church where there's a lot of women who are new converts to Christian faith and whose husbands have not converted. That's why, notice in verse 1 and 2 that we just read, it said that you should do this, wives should do this, submit to their husbands, so that their wives would come to believe in the word by their wife's, so that their husbands may come to believe in the word by their wife's behavior. So in this first century culture, he's writing to these women who have unbelieving husbands. And what would happen is there was the expectation in this society that wives would always worship the gods of their husbands. If a wife didn't worship the god of her husbands, it was seen as a slight on her husband. It's a disrespect to the husband, which was seen as a slight on the marriage in general. So Peter hears about this, and Peter's kind of worried, because what he's seeing is when all these women have been coming to Christ, it's causing the society, the culture that's watching this happen, question Christian faith. Because they're saying, when Christianity comes into a marriage, look what happens. The wife is dishonored. The marriage is broken. The marriage is weakened. This is a problem. So what he's saying to wives is, honor your husbands. Seek to show them that you are still trying to honor them as best as you can. And this can soften the husband's heart, not just to his wife, but to the Christian faith. And Peter's most important point here is that through all this, God could be glorified. Because people could come to Christ, these husbands could come to Christ, and this marriage could be seen as something that when a Christian comes into a marriage, it's something that actually strengthens a marriage rather than weakens the marriage. So the whole point here of why Peter is asking wives to honor their husbands is for the sake of glorifying God in this society where God was not being glorified and the people were beginning to think worse of Christian faith when people would come to Christ. Now, Peter's world is much different than ours, isn't it? We don't live in as much of a hierarchical or patriarchal society as Peter's society was. So it raises the question, is any of this relevant for us now? Well, I would say that it is. And the reason I think that it is, at least one reason, is from Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians 5, Paul gives a very similar teaching for wives to submit to their husbands, for husbands to love their wives. But he doesn't base it in the fact that husbands aren't believers. Husbands are believers in that passage. He doesn't base it in the fact that they live in a patriarchal society. He bases it in the fact that when husbands and wives live according to this design, it causes people to be able to see in their marriage a picture of Christ's relationship to the church. And that basically it's reenacting the gospel for people to see because wives and submitting to their husbands and husbands loving their wives are a picture of how Christ relates to us. So I don't think we can say that this is not something that we need to think about today. I think it's part of God's wisdom for us. At the same time, 
if you're a wife reading this, this is really hard. This is really hard to think of. What does it look like to honor my husband? If for no other reason, husbands are often very unworthy of that honor. How do you go about honoring a husband when he's not being worthy of it? He's not doing what he should do. Well, I think this is why Peter includes verses 3 and 4. Read with me verses 3 and 4. He says, Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of a great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. Now, some people, when they read these words, think that what Peter's calling women to is to all dress like this. You know, all women are supposed to dress uh, as Amish women do or certain facets of the Mennonite church do. Because some women seriously believe that this is what Scripture is calling them to in this passage. I don't think that this is Peter's way of saying, hey, here's Christian dress code for women. I don't think that's the point. I think what Peter is doing here is Peter is basically trying to make the point that if you're going to honor your unbelieving husbands or honor your believing husbands, it's going to be difficult and you're going to need an internal strength of character. You're going to need to develop yourself so that you have an inner strength that goes far beyond any external beauty that you have. I think that's his main point. And you can see this elsewhere in Scripture. Paul saying to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.8, to all Christians, not just wives, physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a challenge for all of us in how we spend our time. Um, this is my weight bench at home. I just got that. I know it doesn't show, but I actually attempt to use this at times. Uh, I just got it a couple months ago, and this is Debbie and I's latest attempt to try to stay in shape. Sometimes we've done Insanity, P90X. You know, the culture says we need to look beautiful. We're doing our best to meet society's expectations for us. The problem is uh, it takes a lot of time to meet society's expectations. You know, P90X is like an hour and a half of my day. And besides the fact that I don't have an hour and a half, I've had to ask myself, how much time am I spending in prayer compared to the amount of time I'm spending doing what this trainer is yelling at me to do? How much time am I spending in Scripture? Now, it doesn't glorify God for me to be out of shape. It doesn't strengthen my marriage for me to be out of shape. God wants us to be good stewards of our bodies. And it's not a problem. It's not necessarily glorifying either to God to like dress out of style. That's not what Peter's talking about. What Peter's saying is if we're going to glorify God in our marriages, if we're going to have the internal Christian character to be able to honor our spouse when it's hard to do so, we need to prioritize the inner person, the inner self. Now, if you're doing that, if you're a wife and you're saying, I'm giving my time to have uh, time with Christ, to really being able to strengthen myself, but I'm still not sure what it actually looks like to honor my husband. How do I actually do that. Well, Peter gives an example of what it looks like to honor your husbands in verses 5 and 6. Read with me, verse 5 and 6. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. It's possible, wives, that your husband will make a very stupid joke on the drive home today and tell you that you should call him Lord. 
That is not what this passage is trying to say. He's not saying that you should, if this passage is referring to Sarah and Abraham's relationship, and it's referring specifically to Genesis 18, 12. Sarah is here talking to herself, joking to herself about this promise that God made to give her children when she's really past the age of having children. And this is what Sarah says. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? So first of all, Sarah's laughing when she says this. So it's, it's one thing to consider. But the other thing to consider is Sarah isn't talking to Abraham like, oh, my Lord. Sarah's talking about Abraham. She's being respectful of him. It's showing that she's honoring her husband and how she thinks about him. That's what's going on here. Now, what does this look like for wives today, for wives who want to honor their husbands and are saying, what does it look like to do so? Again, we can't cover everything that a marriage seminar could cover today. But one of the things I think this passage particularly points out is, if Sarah's an example of of how she talked about Abraham, I would challenge you to think about how do you talk about your husbands? How do you talk about them? When you talk about them with your friends, do you kind of talk negatively and put them down to your friends? When you talk to your husband in a public setting, do you kind of make fun of him and embarrass him where kind of it's awkward because you can see that the husband's like my wife is supposed to like, like me is like making fun of me and everyone's laughing at me. Uh, I have actually friends who, when they got married, they said, it is our goal. We've made it a promise to each other that we're never going to make fun of each other in public because we've been in so many awkward situations where a wife is making fun of her husband and he's, to- and he's totally embarrassed. Now, I don't want to cut off any, I know you guys are going to be like, you're such a hypocrite because like Debbie and I are going to make fun of each other like next Saturday night or something. But um, I don't want to make a law out of this. Obviously, there's a playfulness that's fine. But I do think we should think about, are we honoring one another? And wives, are you honoring your husbands and how you talk about them? I don't think it strengthens our marriages and I don't think it glorifies God when people see us talking about our spouses in that sort of way. So the first thing that Peter's saying, and again, the big picture here is, how do you glorify God in all areas of life and how do you glorify God in your marriage? The first thing I want, I think Peter wants us to think about, wants wives to think about is, Honor your husband. That's a way you can really glorify God in your marriage. That's a way you can make God look good. Now, the second thing Peter wants to show is he wants to talk to why uh, husbands. And he wants to say to husbands, a God-glorifying marriage is a marriage where husbands are considerate of their wives. Let's read verse 7 to see what this looks like. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Immediately, the women may be saying, wait a minute, there were six verses about wives, and we have one verse given to husbands. How is that possibly fair? Well, the reason for this disparity isn't because wives bear more responsibility in marriage. Scholars say it's because this situation of a lot of women coming to Christ and their husbands not was such an issue in this church at this time that Peter had to respond to this disparity and had to give time to speak to it. Thus, that's why he's given more time to wives here. But there's just as much, if not more, expected out of husbands in marriage. And husbands are called here to be considerate of their wives. What does that mean for a husband to to be considerate of their wives? Well, the word considerate literally means, if you were to kind of parse it out in the Greek, it literally means to live knowledgeably to live knowledgeably with your wife. 
How is a husband to live knowledgeably with his wife, to be considerate of his wife? We're going to point out three different things. The first thing you can do is you can seek to get to know your wife in order to live with her knowledgeably. Get to know your wife. This is something that uh, I'm guilty of not doing. Um, I work at Access full-time as a social worker. I also work here at the church, as you know. And sometimes it's easy for me to help put the kids to bed. And then after I put the kids to bed, I just work. That's how I spend my night. And Deb recently said to me at the end of kind of a work week, she said, Dave, each night this week, when you've put the kids to bed, you've just gone to the table, kitchen table and opened up your laptop. And we really haven't spent much time talking. And she was right. And I needed to really think about that because we as men cannot assume if we put time in during the dating years and if we put time in in the early parts of our marriage to getting to know our wife that we know everything there is to know. How, if I don't get to know my, my wife's needs, her wants, who she is, how am I going to be considerate of those needs and wants in my marriage? If we're to live knowledgeably with our wives, to be considerate of, their wives, of our wives, we need to continually get to know them and spend time with them talking about where they are, who they are, what they need from us in our marriage. The second thing you can do as a husband to be considerate of your wife, and it says this in verse 7, treat your wives with respect as the weaker partner. Yet another place where men tend to be stupid in the ways they mess with this text. Weaker partner is not about women being weaker mentally than men are. What this is referring to is the fact that in most marriages, Women are physically weaker than men are. That just tends to be a reality based on how we're designed. So how, then, is a husband supposed to be considerate of his wife as the physically weaker partner? Well, one thing that shouts from this text is that we need to be considerate by not using our strength, not using our physical strength to harm our wives. One of the things that takes place and has taken place through the centuries is husbands have used verse 1, Wives submit to your husbands as an excuse for either being sexually demanding of their wives or physically harming their wives. So domestic violence has taken place sometimes by Christian Christian husbands as a result of them abusing this passage. If you are a man who is physically abusing your wife, you are sinning against your wife and you are sinning against God and he will hold you accountable for it. This is an important point for Peter because Peter is saying, glorify God in your marriages. And this does not glorify God. It does not make him look good if a man who claims to be a Christian is physically harming his wife. This point was hit home to me a number of years ago. I was in kind of this chaplaincy training course. And I was trained by a woman from a local um, women's shelter who came to speak about the issue of domestic violence and the church. And she went through church history and showed quotes and examples of men who talked about abusing their wife, hitting their wife when they got out of line. Not even shamelessly, not even acting like there was a problem with it. And a mentor of mine at the time, a fellow chaplain, said to me something I'll never forget. He said, based, Dave, on my experience and based on statistics, I believe that every church has at least three things. Pornography, substance abuse, and domestic violence. If that's true, it's even close to being true, then it's possible that even in our own church, we have men who are being violent towards their wives. 
If that is happening, um, the problem, wives, is not that you're not submitting to your husband or not honoring your husband. The problem is that your husband is sinning against you and sinning against God. If that's happening, you need to get safe. This may mean talking to a friend. It may mean um, talking to a local women's shelter. We have Laurel House and a women's place that are local. Or it may mean calling law enforcement because your husband isn't just sinning, he's breaking the law. So part of what it means to be considerate husbands of our wives is that we would never use our physical strength as a means of hurting them. There's one more thing that it means to be considerate of our wives in this passage. And this it's the third thing he says towards the end of verse 7. We're to treat them with respect, not just as the weaker partner, but as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. We're to treat our wives as equals. Most of the time in marriages, the problem is not that husbands are using their physical strength against their wives, or physically abusing their wives, but sometimes they can be emotionally abusing our wives. Are we treating our wives as equals, or are we talking down to them? What Peter has to say here is what Paul says in Galatians 3. He says, There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Husbands, being the servant leaders of their homes, it doesn't mean they're any more spiritual than their wives. In this context, these women were coming to Christ before their husbands were. They were closer to Christ than their husbands were. So that's not the issue. So we should never speak down to them. We should never use profanity at them. We should never, in our anger, uh, put them down and feel, make them feel that they are less than us. That's not what it means to be considerate of our spouse. If we're going to be considerate of our spouse, what Peter wants us to see in verse 7 here, is we need to get to know them as husbands. We need to live knowledgeably with them. We need to not take advantage of our physical strength, and we need to treat them as full equals in our relationship with them. Now, there's a third thing for Peter. I've said there's three things in this passage that Peter wants to say are are central to how we can glorify God in our marriage. The first, as I already said, was wives honor your husbands. Second, husbands, be considerate of your wives. But there's a third thing, and it's this. A marriage that glorifies God is a marriage where both partners focus on Christ. Both partners focus on Christ. When anybody reads a passage like this, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 3, um, a couple things happen. First, we may find that we tend to focus on our partner. So if we're husbands, we say, why doesn't my wife honor me enough? And if we're wives, we say, why doesn't my wife show me enough consideration? Instead, we shouldn't be mainly focusing on one another, though that, there may be a time for that and a time, obviously, for communication in marriage about that. But we shouldn't even, first thing, be focusing on ourselves. We should be focusing on Christ. Why? Well, if we focus on our partner, we'll basically become resentful because they're never going to live up to our expectations. They're never going to perfectly live out what Peter's teaching here. If we focus on ourselves, we'll be despondent. And we'll just say, there's no use. I can't do this. I can't do what Peter is asking. But if we focus on Christ, we will find that in him, we have everything that we need to be able to glorify God in our marriage. This is why... Peter, in the middle of this passage that starts from chapter 2, verse 11, through to chapter 3, verse 7, where Peter's talking about glorifying God in different areas of life, in the workplace, in government, in marriage, right in the middle of it, in verses, I think it's 21 through 25 of chapter 2, he presents Christ, and he looks at Christ's life 
death, and resurrection. And it's, it's as if Peter is saying, if you want to glorify God in any of these spheres, first and foremost, you need to focus on Christ. If we focus on Christ, as we try to glorify God in marriage, we'll see that he gives us an example to follow. This same Jesus who asks wives to honor, to submit to their husbands, is the same Jesus who submitted to his father in coming here to give his life for us. This same Jesus who calls husbands to be considerate of their wives is the same Jesus who gave his life for his bride, the church. There's nothing we're called to do by God's word that Jesus hasn't already done for us. If we focus on Jesus when we fail in marriage, and we all fail in marriage, and we sin against our spouse probably daily, when we do that, we do not become hopeless and say, you must not be the right person. I'm going to go find someone who can make me happy. We say, the problem is with me, but I can find forgiveness in Christ's death on the cross for me. And I can find forgiveness and a place to start again. And when we focus on Christ and his life, death, and resurrection, we find that just as Christ was raised from the dead, any marriage can be raised from the dead. And he will give us the power and the strength of his Holy Spirit to help us to have a new and fresh start in our marriages. This is what happens when we say, I'm not going to focus on you. I'm not going to focus first and foremost on me. I'm going to focus on Christ and everything after that follows. I was recently officiating a wedding for a couple and they had said their desire for their marriage is that God would be at the center of their marriage. And as we were talking through it in premarital counseling, we realized something. God cannot be at the center of your marriage if God isn't at the center of each of your lives. Each partner needs to focus on Christ for themselves if God is to be at the center of their marriage. So as we seek to glorify God in marriage, as Chris was saying earlier, as we seek as a church to live out our mission of living a life of worship together in all spheres and in our marriage as well, then we want to have wives who honor their husbands. We want to have husbands who are considerate of their wives. But first and foremost, we want to be a people who focus on Christ and on his life, death, and resurrection to motivate us and to redeem us and to give us an opportunity to glorify him in marriage. Let's pray. Father, we are weak people and we are flawed people. And I know I fail at living out what Peter calls us to in this passage. We need your grace and we need your help. I pray for people here whose marriages are in a very difficult spot. Please strengthen them, bring people into their lives who can support and encourage them and help each of us to give time and attention to our marriages so that we can glorify you before a watching world that is wondering if what we say about you is true. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.